for me, there was one rule that I, or one pact I made with myself when I left politics to do kitchen and then kitchen now to do wine. Um, no regret. Don't look back. Because if you keep on, if you, if you sulk on your regret or you keep on looking in the past, you really can't move forward. And that's something that my parents always had told me. I mean, they're entrepreneurs themselves and they started with not much, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And they were able to do many, many things. And it's really going with your gut. I mean, let's say right now you're in the kitchen and you, you've been there for a few years and you realize you want to do more. But you just don't know what it is. But that's okay. You don't need to know. You don't need to have the answer. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was going to make wine. I left in 2017 and I made wine in 2019. So I had a 2018. I was a bit like dabbling a little bit of everything, doing consultancy in that until I figured out that, yeah, I, I want to make wine. And it's okay. I think a lot of people thought it was crazy though at this point. <laughs> but just believe in yourself. Really go with your gut. So today we have Jade. Jade and I haven't really worked together. We have been part of the similar ecosystem, Jade, for much longer and much uh, like back in the days in Muguritz. And uh, the idea of this episode is basically to, because Jade has left, I would say, of some sorts, not gastronomy, but being a chef as such, and has educated herself in not only wines, but also in business, I'm assuming, by starting a brand. And especially in a country foreign to you of sorts. I don't know how much now, but I'm assuming it's 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 not somewhere somewhere you you were brought up. And so the idea of this is to like to find out how can someone convert that passion with all the challenges it brings into into a business that's that's not only I would say famous, but also a project which is quite inspirational and actually can drive a lot of people into things like wines, which are not I don't think people wake up to the idea of having a wine estate or having a wine brand because it's something where the value of tradition and the value of having it since so many years it's so much more important mm -hmm. so jade how would how would you introduce yourself to us <laughs> that's a that's a hard question to answer um i don't know i feel like most of my life i've been pretty nomad until i came to spain so, um, you know, I had a very multicultural upbringing um, because I was born and raised in Hong Kong. My parents come from two very different cultures. Uh, my dad's originally from New York. My mom is from Shanghai, but they have been living in, in, in Hong Kong or uh, Asia and Hong Kong, uh, I don't know, maybe like 45, 50 years now. And um, I think a lot of things that happened in my adolescence probably brought me to where I am today. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I'm the best person to describe myself because <laughs> I'm pretty hard on myself anyways. So um, I think it's just, uh, I'm just someone that I realize that just really like challenges, even though I do complain about them. <laughs> um, I feel that um, it brings the best of me when I'm in a context uh where I'm outside of my comfort zone, basically. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's as if you're surfing a wave and you don't know at what point you're going to fall, but you're still riding the wave. There's going to be a come to a point where you're going to fall. But that in like that not knowing what's going to happen, I think sort of attracts me. And I think a lot of things that I decided to do uh, in my life uh, is basically based on that concept. Because when I was 18... I went to New York to study at New York University and I studied politics and uh, I did a minor in Italian and I did politics because I honestly and naively thought I was going to save the world. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, I, I assume as we all do, as we all did. And, uh, so I studied different kinds of politics. I lived in Prague. I, I studied Eastern European politics. I lived in Italy. I did Italian politics. I mean, all different from all the different continents and concretely particular countries. Um, and then I had done some internships as well. The one that marked me the most was the International Criminal Court, mm -hmm. which they do have. It is based in The Hague, but they do have an office uh, in New York City. And I realized that even though we were all trying to you know, make a change, um, the change that comes is much later 
and it's 0.0001% of the supposed change. And it was, it was me going with the passion, but at the same time fighting against the current. And I had always felt that maybe I will never see some sort of established change, you know, like physical change or, oh, wow, I did this. And now, you know, the world is a much better place. Um, so I told my parents that I wanted to have a gap year before doing a master's and travel world and volunteer because I had done that already. I, I had gone to India, I was there for about six months as well. And I just wanted to go to different places and figure out what I really want to do. Um, but my mother told me that, no, you need to go do a master's now. <laughs> Because in Asian culture, or especially Asian moms or Chinese moms, they're very, you know, you know they 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 know what you what they want you to have the best, and mm -hmm. I think that she just wanted to push me to or gear and guide me to where I was supposed to go, and so I said okay, fine, and uh, so I went to London. I went to the London School of Economics, and I studied masters in human rights, wow. because I really thought I was still within this you know, this, um, the world of nonprofit and helping people and trying to make a change. But I was more than convinced at that point that it wasn't for me. Um, I did finish the master's, but I remember I was speaking to a friend of mine, um, who at the time, uh, got into law school and her father was a lawyer or quite a, quite a well-known barrister actually in Hong Kong. And, um, so she was going to go to law school as well. And she, after two weeks, she quit. And I was in this moment of my life. I don't know what to do, but I'm going to finish my master's, but what should I do? And she's like, what do you like to do? And then we just ended up just having a conversation. And, um, she had just started an internship in an organization in London called escape the city, which is, I don't know if you heard about it, but it's basically a startup where they help people around 25 to 35 years old who went the conventional way of let's do, let's be a lawyer, let's work in finance, let's be a doctor, for example. But actually the real passion is to be a dancer or to be a photographer, mm -hmm. but they didn't have the funds to start from zero. Oh. So Escape the City helped them do that, which I thought was amazing actually. And um, so she was already in this mood like, yeah, do what you want to do and be happy. And I said, yeah, well, you know, you know, I like to cook, but it wasn't something... It was something that I, you know, it was a hobby. Um, I don't have that story where I cooked with my grandmother <laughs> in the kitchen. The only thing I do know is I really love to eat uh -huh. and I like to try different things. And I think that growing up in Hong Kong and being able to travel around the world also widened the, the palate. Mm -hmm. And so secretly I applied to a culinary school in Paris okay. um, called Ecole Ferrandi. And within France nationally, it's quite uh, mm -hmm. well known. And um, when I got in, I thought, okay, I'm not going to ask my parents to also pay for the mm -hmm. studies. So I applied for a grant at James Beard Foundation, mm -hmm. right? So it's a foundation that supports uh, chefs who are U.S. citizens around the world. And I got the grant. And so I thought that there was how crazy it is. I got into a culinary school having no culinary background and then getting a grant from Jade's beard. Um, and I guess I wrote a compelling essay. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah, so then I ended up going to culinary school in Paris, which I had loved. And, uh, and I thought that if I was really going to do this, uh, so my passion for food at this point was I'm, I would call myself a foodie definitely because I really like to try different places. And I think Paris at the time where I was there was the boom of bistronomie, mm -hmm. you know, like the, kids that were, I mean, the young chefs that worked in Alain Ducasse, Pierre Garnier, and all these top restaurants opening their bistro that was Neo Bistro. Mm -hmm. And it was right at that moment. And I thought it was a great moment to be in Paris, actually. And um, so I thought if I really was going to do this for my passion for food, I'm going to pick the hardest place I can find to do an internship <laughs> at the time. Okay, now it probably has changed. So it was Alain Ducasse or Place Athenée. So it's a three-star Michelin restaurant. And... It was, uh, yeah, it was definitely one of the hardest things I've ever done because you have one foot in your old world where you can always go back, right, mm -hmm. to be a lawyer or whatever, but, and you have one foot in the new world. And the hardest part is taking that second foot that's in the 
in the old world and bringing that forward and whatever happens happens Mm -hmm. right and um so i did the internship uh yeah i was i didn't i i wondered if all kitchens were the same Right. So when I had finished, uh, my dream at the time was to go to El Bui, but they had closed mm-hmm. in that year. So my second, I well, my other choice was El Cie de Canroca, but mm-hmm. they didn't have any spots. So I went to Mugaritz. Okay. And when I was there, I realized that uh, it was a different way of thinking for me. Mm-hmm. It was very, uh, it wasn't a pyramid style hierarchy for me at mm-hmm. the time it was very lineal mm-hmm. in the fact that um i was an intern but i had a voice and right. if i asked a question about why you would do it the way you would do it they would always give you an explanation in my head in my previous internship it wasn't really that experience so i felt it was much more welcoming and um and yeah, I I stayed there for a year. I ended up in the in the closed part of Imazde, mm-hmm. which I had loved as well. And uh, because of paperwork, I, I couldn't stay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did end up going to El Sayer, okay, which I thought was a great uh, an, another great restaurant where m- more family style because mm-hmm. you know you're the brothers and you eat in the parents' restaurant, the old restaurant. Um, and I think I had a great time and it also gave me another perspective of how you, you know, treat gastronomy. Um, and actually I was about to go to Favakin okay. when, uh, Danny Lassa called me actually and asked me to come back cause he knew I really wanted to come back. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I came back in 2013 as a chef de partie. And after being there one year, I thought that. Uh, I would like to travel the world because I was a nomad <laughs> the other part of my life and just work in different kitchens, right? Nice. Um, and just at that moment, they there was a woman head chef at Mugres called Julieta. Mm-hmm, of course. And she had she left. Mm-hmm. And so they had to fill the spot. And so they asked Juan and I to mm-hmm. be two head chefs at the same time. And I thought that... I saw so on the one hand... as do I travel the world and be a chef or be a head chef at Mugarit? Mm-hmm. And I thought that this was a once in a lifetime opportunity because I had started really late in the game. I right. mean, I started after a master. So this, at this point I was 23 mm-hmm. and I always had thought that I was always behind from everyone else because I even told, I even told Danny this, I told him that I know I'm not the best chef, but I do have the opportunity to travel the world and eat in different restaurants and I know how to eat. And I think you need to know mm-hmm. what's going on Definitely. to not, or just not be so focused on what you're doing yeah. on, right. In one particular place you need to see. And, um, so that was my plus, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and after one year being head chef again, I thought I was going to go travel the world and be chef de partie or head chef in another restaurant. And right at that time, Oswaldo, who oh, was yeah. in Imas de, he left and they had offered me his spot. And again, I thought this is definitely a once in a lifetime <laughs> because Imas de is, you know, yeah. it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> and I accepted and I stayed uh, another three more years. So I stayed until 2017, wow. end of 2017. And it was great because, you know, Imas de was a whole, whole other ball game uh, for me. Uh, different way of thinking, surrounded by people very creative. I never thought myself I was very creative, but you know, as as Andoni likes to say, if you surround yourself with people who are very creative, you then become you get creative, infected. Right? right. So yeah. Hey, funnily enough, I've seen like some of your books because I when I used to spend these because when you had these big break shifts, I used to go up in the library and set, uh, mm-hmm. like, spend some time at the, at the most bottom shelf. Yes. There are still like I wouldn't say books, but these fi- like spiral bounded files. Yes. With you and Nilasa or you and someone else. And oh, see. <laughs> I wouldn't say these are not creative ideas. What I've yeah. seen there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's a little. There was a little bit of everything. There's mm-hmm. a little bit of everything. But um, yeah. But so during my time at Mugritz, uh. I got more into the world of wine as a consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I've always consumed wine, but I was very into French wine because in, in Hong Kong, uh, the wines that they import are either French, Italian, or Australian. And so, uh, you know, I consumed, but without any knowledge. Uh, when I came to Spain, I 
uh, well, I figured out that there were different areas with really interesting wines. I had visited La Rioja a few times until one time, one sommelier, uh, Nico, mm -hmm. who is now in El Cano, uh, told me that I should visit this couple uh, in this small little town in San Vicente. Um, so I went and we started a friendship uh, and who, and they eventually became my mentors actually. Uh, and the year I left Mugritz, I, to be honest, I, I think what I felt was what I felt when I left, uh, human rights. Um, it wasn't, I, I felt, I don't know at what point, what could I do more mm -hmm. and how could I push myself more? So I felt I should have just, uh, started from zero again. Right. So this is literally almost a little bit more than 10 years later, mm -hmm. restarting again. Mm -hmm. And I remember this couple, Abel Mendoza and Maite, his wife, how can you start again from zero and you're 31 or 32? And I said, if I don't try it, I, I'll never figure it out. I'll never know. And I'm always going to have this feeling of like, what if? Yeah. And I think that's what had happened when I studied, when I finished my master's is what if I just tried and if it fails, it fails. But I, I don't know. I, I, I felt that feeling again, but 10 years later, mm -hmm. um, no knowledge of how to make wine. Uh, and they basically they taught me everything I know now. Um, the project is very young. It started in 2019 in the wine world. You're compared to mm -hmm. all these wineries that are a hundred, 200 years old, or even 50 years old. Um, but yeah, I think that, uh, being very meticulous, and I like to know how things are made. And I think this curiosity has led me to where I am, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. Um, and yeah, so I started with about 800 bottles in 2019. And now four years later, uh, I would say it's about 5,000 bottles. Wow. So slowly it's growing. It's becoming more important. Uh, people are very receptive. So I'm very lucky. Um, and people are repeating, uh, their orders, which also makes me feel that I am doing mm -hmm. at, at least an acceptable wine. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel a lot of things, of course, that I learned from Mugrid's really tra like translated into the wine because winemaking for me is almost like cooking, but long-term. So, because, you know, at the end of the day, fermentation and maceration are terms that are also used in the kitchen. Uh, the only difference is, uh, in the kitchen, you can make a dish today and then make it again in a few hours, even tomorrow. Uh, but with, uh, winemaking, as you know, it's a harvest is one time a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're really dependent on nature and on the sun and the rain and the, and the heat, uh, and other factors. And that could either make or break your, your vintage basically. Mm -hmm. And the reaction is, well, the product comes out one year later, approximately. And another difference that I realized just the other day is that in a kitchen, you can see the reactions of the people when they eat, mm -hmm. but I don't know what people yeah. feel when they drink the wine. Yeah. And it goes right now. I th it's about in 13 different markets and mm -hmm. 13 different countries. And you don't know what this person, you don't have that feedback unless it's on social media. Yeah. So it's also quite scary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I first started, uh, a lot of people were very receptive on the wine and it put me on a different platform. And I think I'm very lucky for that, but there's also, there's always going to be a pro and a con with that. You know, mm -hmm. they start comparing you with people that have been making wine for a while. And I, I mean, I'm not here to, to be, uh, I'm not here to compete. I'm here because it makes me happy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is my final stride. Maybe at <laughs> What's 40, next? 40 something, I'll do something else. But for now, it's um, it's become a vocation. It's become a life project. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, the only thing I can do is always improve. So the way I make wine is, as I make wine, I learn, which is a bit risky because at the end of the day, it's trial and error. Yeah. Um, so it's almost, like, it's almost like in the R and D, right? When they're creating the dishes, mm -hmm. uh, but you get to recreate and recreate and recreate. But this is okay. I'm gonna do this little tweak. I'm not gonna ferment it like this. I'm gonna ferment it like that. 
And sometimes it's a win and sometimes it's not so much a win. But going with that, what about like uniformity? Because now you're selling a product which goes by a brand, which goes by, of course, people understand the concept behind right. natural wines and they all have, every bottle has its own character and things like right. that. But you're still supposed to deliver compared to doing edition Muguritz where the idea is that everything is cut organically and should not look square, I would say in right. a way. Right. How easy it is because there, of course, you're, di- you're serving 50 diners a night. In a very controlled condition of how they consume and where they consume and temperature and all these things, how do you feel like bringing that philosophy into your business now? Um, is it the same, or you had to relearn some values for like wine consumers compared to fine dining food consumers? I feel it's a little bit more cutthroat. Mm-hmm. The wine, I maybe because you don't see. Yeah. Again, like going back to like seeing the reaction or seeing what they think. I'm not. I. I'm. I'm not saying that. My product is the best product on the market because I know it's not, but it's an interpretation mm-hmm. from someone who is an outsider, who is not from Spain, who has no links to any sort of viticultural his- history or family that has vines or worked in wine. It's someone who very much appreciates, respects this region, and it's an interpretation of, of a, pre- a former chef. And a person that really is a is a consumer of wine, and um, I th- what I do say to the people who either distribute my wine or buy my wine is, I, I don't I couldn't I don't think I can be consistent, because mm-hmm. I'm still figuring out my style. Because in in wine they always say oh, what kind of style of wine do you make I don't even know how to answer that question <laughs> because I'm I'm still figuring out what I like. I'm going to make a white wine. How am I going to make it? Okay, this year I'm a little bit more happier than last year because I feel like there's an improvement because I've changed the technique because I've changed the grapes. But I can't guarantee that next year is going to be the same. Because again, you're based on nature. That's one hand. And second hand, I'm still learning. I mean, I've only been doing this for four years. So it's always a bit of a gamble. Uh, That's what I sell is inconsistency. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, yeah, I think that's the only thing I can say is that every year vinification will change depending on what I feel is best, but I'm not saying that it is the answer and that's going to be the style that defines me. I feel like right now there is no style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's lovely. I think, I think I connect with you a lot of things. I've myself moved a lot. I actually was a, somebody who was a very, I think it's something very Indian as well. I don't know how many people from how many countries relate with that. Very patriotic. I think it's patriotism is taught to you even from like school stage and I was going to be in the army and the navy and things like that actually ended up being in activism being a part of a political party before I could actually vote and then coming from that into gastronomy was a very sudden like the only thing the one thing similar I found in both of these things is that they both I don't know if many industries do that I think many people take their work and job as something they do as a part of the day and they get out of it I think what I found in, I was in a left-wing political party, borderline communist, and they had, like, when I was in that, every conversation I had with people outside work was all only about it or even like value stemming from it, where it's like, you're in such a big bubble where you feel that, you know that what you're doing is right and it's going to be, maybe it's not the answer, but it's somewhat, it's, gonna, it's a better option compared to what's in 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 trend today, I would say. Um how do you connect that? Like, Because that, that's something which challenged me a lot because then when I started traveling uh, uh, while working for a said restaurant, I started seeing new concepts or like questioning things that I was basing my, say, food philosophy or like dining philosophy on. Um, is that also something you relate with on these two fields specifically? I would say human rights activism, politics and gastronomy. Um, there's always politics in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that came handy. That came quite handy. Yeah. Um, I think um, I think that was actually a, one of the themes, no, of MAD. Yeah, also. Uh, two years. Of, uh-huh. yeah. Connecting across borders or something, something with, with politics as well. Politics and immigration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was supposed to go to that one, actually. Okay. Um, I think that's a big theme to handle. I feel that there's, I mean, not only in Gashami, there's a lot of things that go that goes on around the world in terms that are that has a little bit of politics, a little bit of immigration, a little bit of workers' rights, human rights. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I think it's something that unless you have, I mean, you have organizations like MAD that really treat the problem, but I think it's really important to also act upon it. Um, and you can have governments like maybe 
Denmark and Sweden and Norway who are a little bit more, um, I guess, support more of their citizens and mm-hmm. more welcoming. But then you have other countries that are a little bit more closed. So I think it's a little complicated. I think it depends on where you find yourself in. And coming from, like, I, I mean, you, you were born in Hong Kong, but I think it also gives you perspective of what the rest of Asia is like. You've traveled to India, as you said, you've traveled to South East Asia. Um, how do you see coming from a culture where, for me, I mean, for me, this interview is pretty easy because I'm basing the questions I would ask myself. Okay, yeah. Just good. bouncing it no off your head and to see what your reaction is like. Um, how do you see, for example, if I, if I, like, I'm also the black sheep of the family. Every kid in India is either a doctor, lawyer, engineer. My brother, for example, is a mechanical engineer. Same as in, yeah. Exactly, so, which is why it's easy for me to ask these questions. Um, when I said I want to do this, they didn't. So I used to like, first I used to like dump it down what I'm doing. But then I said, you know, actually, I should tell them more of what I'm doing and maybe like simplify it and things like that. But still the gap is so big compared yeah. to where not only the amount of disposable income people have, I think there are people in Bombay right now who can buy half of San Sebastian, wouldn't, wouldn't care about it, but they wouldn't put the same money on dining out. No. Or on a natural wine, which has its own character. But then the these are places also where you eat, like... Exactly. Different... I mean, it's so crazy. They have such a, like, diversity uh-huh. and so much power. And it's so rich in that, you know, that part of culture that it's so funny that at the same time... Yeah. They don't put... I don't know how you would say, like, not value, but... I don't know. It's... I, I remember when I told my parents I was going to culinary school... Like, like for my mom, for example, in Asian culture or in Chinese culture, it's either a doctor, lawyer, or finance, uh-huh. right? So I was going to the lawyer route. Right. And uh, being a chef, maybe back then, now it's maybe it's a little bit different. Uh, you know, it didn't look so good because... And although there's a diversity in terms of food is in China, but in, in Asia in general, obviously every single country, every single province has their little, mm-hmm. you know, particular style of food. Um, they love to eat out. They love, you know, everything that's very interesting. But at the same time, if you say that that's going to be your vocation, your passion, it's like almost frowned upon, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so when I told my parents I was going to make wine, I think at this point, just do whatever you, just do whatever you want. Um, because we can't say anything, but no, I think they've seen how I've grown, how I changed as a person and now being an entrepreneur is they're entrepreneurs themselves. And Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, it also, you know, it gives them a little bit like respect as well now. Uh, but it was, it was not, it's, it's still not easy, but it hasn't been, hasn't been an easy ride, uh, in general. So, um, the only thing is to really have that passion and push forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really you really have to believe in what you're doing to give you strength. Not so much physical. I think it's really emotional and mental. And um, if you don't have that, it's really not worth it, I think. Because you'll be bogged down really easily. Mm-hmm. You know, It's really fighting for what you want. Like really going against the current all the time. Right. And sometimes it's quite tiring. Um, sometimes you feel a little bit more down, right? If you, you're, you have highs and lows, right? As, Mm -hmm. as, as, as everybody, but it's really fighting against the current. But for me, it's not only just having changed completely, uh, the pro, I mean, from being a chef to now winemaker, um, I still don't consider myself a winemaker, to be honest. I don't even know what I would call myself. (laughs) This is chef trying to make wine. Um, but I think it's also for me, it's, um, it's, I'm not using it as a justification, mm-hmm. but you know, there's not a lot of female winemakers. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of foreign winemakers, right. uh, that's starting a project from scratch. I know, for example, there are a lot of Japanese winemakers in France and mm-hmm. I think they're quite well supported, but in Spain, I, you know, a lot of the women either have some sort of relation, uh, and if not, they're they're Spanish, mm-hmm. and physically, you know, I I feel I feel at the beginning it was harder for me because physically obviously I look Asian or mm-hmm. half Asian, and um, that also was a struggle for acceptance, uh, in in you know in a society in a tradition that's quite very local, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, breaking that barrier also you need a lot of um 
balls. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, that's a big. I think it's a big move to like. For you, I think it's challenging. Some things like what we do are before we like start questioning that okay, it's gonna be some challenging for somebody to accept it. I think for ourselves, we are the ones who are actually making that bigger question for you to like go out there, not just put your name but put your face on that bottle. I think that's a loud step, which yeah. would definitely open like pave the way for for the many people who come through. What I wanted to ask through this is that um, there's always this. I'm also somebody who relates a lot with the point of uh, this this discomfort. I still think that it's much easier to deal with uh, failure than to de- deal with regret. I do things which I think would go wrong, definitely, but I still do them for the for the heck of doing it. But then again, being in a in a field like being a chef, I think many passions which I had back then when I was in a in a daily chef's job, it leaves you very little space to dream because you're so occupied. And like, of course, you dream, but to act upon it, um, it's easier to make excuses because you're actually very occupied compared to say you you were in human rights working at the the ICC or you're working at it in a bank job you would have those evenings at those times to think about your passion and actually think that okay I could sign up for this or could could do that how do you keep that passion alive part first part would be that the second part would be are there moments because for me I can definitely say there are moments where I have taken for example this podcast the passion project there are points of it where I'm like receiving messages from people how much they're liking it and everything but there are parts of me which are like i'm coming home in the evening editing it and doing these things but it's actually becoming tiring now yeah and to balance it out to know that how far do you want to go because the idea you started it was like to be happy from it but now it's become a job so it does have those bad days yeah how how do you deal with that or is it something that doesn't happen to you magically uh, dealing with it it's it's it depends on your emotional state i think mm-hmm. but uh the, the, the passion project, I mean, uh, or your passion project is my passion project in wine, right? Uh-huh. Um, I think that, as you said, uh, it was much easier then because it was just being happy, making wine and 800 bottles. 800 bottles for me at the time was a lot, but actually in the world of wine, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's, quite, it's quite small. Um, and uh, I really... I think that I can only speak for myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to see how far I can go. And it's really biting the bullet a lot of times. Um, there's still a lot of politics involved. Yeah. You have to, always, there's always going to be something with politically incorrect, politically correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that uh, it's, I think it's more showing for myself where I want to go, but also. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm going to be, you know, the poster girl for everyone else who's a foreigner and wants to make wine, come and do that. I, I mean, I don't consider myself that, but I feel that it would hopefully in the future would maybe invite or entice more young people to, to make wine and work in the vineyard, which actually agriculture is a very difficult um, field. A lot of people are not wanting to because you get very little from it. Uh, you're very, you're, ba- you're faced with a lot of variables at all times. Um, and how to deal with the ups and downs. Uh, you need to be able to disconnect. I think for me, I, I learned that at Mugri's, um, because as you said, you're so in it mm-hmm. that you don't see it with a perspective ever. Yeah. Right. And it becomes your reality and becomes your, I, sleep thinking about it I wake up thinking about it. maybe I'd be dreaming about it mm-hmm. um and I think for me I was very strict on my day off is my day off that's mm-hmm. the allocated day off mm-hmm. um but a lot of people didn't really understand that and they thought that I was just lazy but mm-hmm. I wasn't I when if everyone if if everyone had a day off and you you call them and don't answer so I should also be able to be able to at least live for at least a few hours mm-hmm. not thinking about by the end of the day you're still thinking about it you you ju- I mean maybe it's just a justification but I feel that disconnect is really important so uh for me the disconnect is being here mm-hmm. because if I'm if I'm in La Rioja I think I would be in the winery at all times and no no disconnect. And I think it's really important, whether it's one day, two days, or exercise, or being with friends, or just going out and living and feeling that you do have a life that you're not just binded by by that. Um, 
I think it's really important for emotional stability, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, if not, because I'm also very, I, again, I can only speak for myself. I have, I'm, I would say I'm a very, um, I don't know how to say it. I think I'm very passionate about <laughs> what I do. I defend it to mm-hmm. the core, but I'm also very obsessive and very perfectionist mm-hmm. and I'm the hardest critic that I know about myself. Mm-hmm. So when I try wine and I, my own wine and I think I'm the most critical person, so no one else can be as critical as me. Mm-hmm. Um, saying all these things, it's really important for me to disconnect. Yeah. Because if not, I think I would just go crazy at this point. <laughs> you know, it would be, um, I'm very serious with what I do and uh, I really don't like to bother other people. I'm really doing my own thing. And yeah, I think, um, I take it, obviously I take it very seriously because it's the life project right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah. So dealing with ups and downs is definitely being able to, to disconnect and be very patient. Mm -hmm. I also, I remember when I, when I left the kitchen, I started making wine. I was, I told my mentor, I was like, I'm going to buy this barrel. I'm going to put the wine like this and, uh, and I'm going to buy this machinery. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You need mm-hmm. to like relax because uh, the world of wine is very slow. You need to have a lot of patience. And sometimes things don't come out the way that you want them to. So for me, it's a daily struggle mm-hmm. <laughs> being patient yeah. um, because I, I'm a sort of character that I want it. I want it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd rather do it on my own to do it faster as yeah. well. So that's something that mm-hmm. I, I, I deal with. Um, but I've, I've learned to, th- things happen for a reason mm-hmm. and whether it plans out or not. Um, yeah, you just have to be able to be acceptant of your current situation and be very adaptable, be very, be very malleable. And I think being malleable, I learned that from, my time at Mugritz because at Mugritz, you know, when you were an intern, you would change stations. Well, when I was there mm-hmm. every two, three months, yeah. uh, the dishes was also changed. You would then have to adapt the recipe. Um, and you're always outside of your comfort zone a little bit, right? Because you're there with other chefs and you're not competing, but you're still competing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that I value very much from my time there and it actually made me a stronger person. And I think without that, I wouldn't be where I am now, for sure. Yeah. I, I think I really like the point where you said about these, uh, I think these setting these boundaries for yourself, it's like something cho- so challenging when you're like so driven and you believe so much in something. It just drives you crazy if you don't set those boundaries. And I think for every form of relationship yeah. with people or with your work or with, with your passion or whatever it is, it's, it's yeah, it's so important. It's so nice to see and so, so much to learn from the way you approach it while having to like juggle between so many roles and then still managing to do that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite inspirational. I wanted to like, I remember you saying back in the, in the beginning of the podcast that you do not like, you subtly touched the theme of like, you do not, do not know what's next. And for me, that's <laughs> something which scares me because I love the discomfort so much. I always complain. I'm not saying that I'm the coolest guy who loves the discomfort and is like joyful. No, I complain. I always complain. I complain constantly to everybody. You know, I I hate, I've like, for the past four years, I've moved every eight months. Yeah. Actually, I just completed eight months. I'm scared. Why is it not happening? And actually, we're sitting right now, people on the podcast can't see it, in a curtainless room. And last week, I was discussing with a friend, should I buy a curtain? And the first thought in my head was, you know what, if I buy the curtain, I have to find someone to sell it when I'm going. And there is no plan of me moving. Right. There should be no reason I should be moving. Right. But it's just so attractive, the idea of being uncomfortable and knowing what's next. Um, how do you balance that out? Like, how do you balance this hunger for... Because all things which are idealized in the world, be it a job, be it a passion, be it a business, the goal of it is uh, stability, which not mm-hmm. all of us would value stability at that stage of life where we are, or at any stage of life maybe. I mean, um, how do you juggle between that stability is important for you to run the numbers and to produce, like not go down the number of bottles you're producing today, right. but also to enjoy your hunger for instability? Of course, no, I think my stability is instability. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a t-shirt. That so. should be a t-shirt, right? No, but um, you know, it's funny because in the world of wine, they do like consistency, right? And mm-hmm. they do like, 
stability because they want to have a producer that eventually the the your path is every year I'm going to make more mm-hmm. right and obviously improve on the wine but every year I'm going to make more and be more accessible to a lot of people right now I can't do that because I'm a one person project I don't have staff mm-hmm. I do it on my I sometimes you know I have a few friends that come and help obviously that is a huge help but during the year I'm I'm basically on my own except for harvest as well but um the stability for me i need to be i need to have stability uh when i'm on a break or sorry, when i'm disconnecting yeah. that's a stability okay to make me be able to live with the daily instability of wine mm-hmm. i think Actually, it's really cool that you're asking me this because I've never really thought about it. So everything that's coming out of my mouth right now, it's really first time I'm thinking about it. But I feel that I need to have a stable life outside of whatever project I'm in for me to then recuperate and then get back into the game and face whatever happens so every time i go to lighter there's like something happening you know mm-hmm. it's either rained a lot or it didn't rain and it's dried up or i don't know something with the wine and so i for me to be able to like just really like reflect it's really important to have a stable life that could be anything i mean i'm not a, for me stability is having freedom and being able to okay what well, i'm going to travel or i'm going to be able to have a go have a drink or eat at home or watch tv or something just really random you know mm-hmm. i think it's really relative depending on the person but um i i am a i'm a big complainer mm-hmm. and so i always complain that every time in the wine i have to do something and this thing came up and i'm not able to focus on doing one particular task because now i have 10 tasks but i think at the end of the day i do like i do like it because i like to you know strike off my list of my to-do list of things that I need to do. Um, but I think for me, uh, as you said, like the disconnect is the stability for mm-hmm. me to survive the instability. That's, that's, that's lovely. I think it should, we should normalize that. I think we, when we look at people, I think we all aspire a lot. I think coming from India, I also aspire a lot with, I think cinema is a big part of our culture, for example. So we idolize, I don't know if you're watching Pursuit of Happiness and you see somebody's story like Chris Gardner making it, it's only focusing on the 90 minutes of him making those big moves. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and if we think that, okay, that instability is what we should idolize, but we are not seeing the other hours of the right. the man's life who he's having a meal with his kid or right. going out to a diner and having pancakes in the morning and things right. like that. Right. So I think it's so important to, that we shouldn't associate all the values we look up to just with profession. I think which is something which happens so commonly in the kitchen because... Of course, the ratio of your time spent at work is much higher than time spent by yourself. Mm-hmm. And also accepting that drawing this boundary, as you said, of like my day off is my day off. And actually, you'll be more nutritive and productive for the for the company when you're back on that on that first day of work, I guess. But that's very that was very hard for them to accept mm-hmm. because you, you need to be available 24 hours a day. Yeah. Especially if you were, you know, hired. Yeah, and you're talking to the producers and the suppliers and or things like that. Or going to the market and then, or whatever, and then something happens, you need to go again to buy something else, or an intern is sick and you need to bring them to the hospital. I mean, there were so many things that you can never, um, it was your responsibility at all times, you know? And for me, I think maybe that's the reason why I did leave is because I had more time to think mm-hmm. outside when yeah. I was already in Imazde. You know, I. It's a, you know, it's a different uh, department and they have their hours and they do service, but they don't always do service. So your, your, your mind is in different uh, fields because you also work with people who are outside of gastronomy. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, all, it just made me had time to, to think and to think more for myself, because I think for many years, I never really thought, th- thought about myself. I always thought about, I gave priorities that were not my own. I, it was I, but I took it as if it was my own. I mean, mm-hmm. I treated Mugris as if it was my own restaurant, yeah. and I'm sure a lot of people did that as well, mm-hmm. right? Or still, people do. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think having that uh, possibility to just really reflect and think: Is this what I really want to do? Mm-hmm. Is it? Would it be crazy to make it another change? or a change, um, I know 
different people who still work in the culinary world, uh, and now a few of them are living in, in Asia, and, you know, they want to now, I don't know, practice yoga, mm-hmm. and to have that, you know, mental stability, and be able to go back to doing chef jobs. I mean, you know, there's a little bit of everything, to be honest, but I think it's only you realize it later. Yeah. You don't realize it when you first start. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, just, again, I would say it's again, because we are not highlighting the things we should highlight, and... I think retrospect and recording these retrospects are so important. I think I, I always say that in the quest of learning what I want to learn, like how things should be done, I've learned volumes of how to not do things constantly. And I think it's important that we, we keep them close, I think, because it's also a phase of, I think it's a learning curve where you do things you're not supposed to do or like you, you, you're in environments you're not supposed to be in. I think it really nourishes you when you look back and realize that, okay, I did it, but I'm glad that I'm out of it now and... I, like tomorrow when I'm in a position of change things and actually be the one at command, there are things to be done. And I think we are all supposed to go through that that phase. But it's beautiful, some of the, the topics you highlighted. I think to wrap up this conversation a little bit of all the directions, like all the wide directions we've we've gone in this, it would be interesting to know from you um, because most people listening from what I hear from them are, are still chefs working in the restaurants every day. I think COVID has changed a lot what happened in restaurants before and how restaurants worked. And that has given people a sort of a breather to look out. And uh, there are so many. Like I interviewed Juan the other day. Um, the whole ecosystem, Vincent Sebastian over here of people valuing things outside the kitchen and approaching gastronomy through different aspects. I would like to know from you, people who are in the kitchens today who have ideas, be it wine or be it something else, of just doing something. You you exactly would know the things that limit them, that I know, that things that limit you from taking that plunge. Could be fi- financial, monetary. I think people think that's the biggest thing, but I think that's the smallest hurdle, the financial part of things, although it might look big. But there are so many mental hurdles which you have to right. go upon. Like, How would you want to, like, if you could say a few words of how what should they focus on as a motivation to do something? Not because the restaurant scene is bad or working in a restaurant is bad, but because... Maybe there is so much more to you that you can explore. And that if you're in a restaurant, if you're in a kitchen, you should be there because you choose to be there. Right. Not because you do not know any other way out. No, I think that you're definitely correct. I think the financial aspect seems like it's a big uh, topic. But at the end of the day, uh, if you can put that aside... Um, it's you living your life, right? You're not going to live anyone else's life. And from what we know, we only live once. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really follow your passion. And uh, for me, there was one rule that I, or one pact I made with myself when I left politics to do kitchen and then kitchen now to do wine. Um, no regret. Mm-hmm. Don't look back. Because if you keep on, if you if you sulk on your regret or you keep on looking in the past, you really can't move forward. And that's something that my parents always had told me. I mean, they're entrepreneurs themselves and they started with not much, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And they were able to do many, many things. And it's really going with your gut. I mean, let's say right now you're in the kitchen and you, you've been there for a few years and you realize you want to do more. But you just don't know what it is. But that's okay. You don't need to know. You don't need to have the answer. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was going to make wine. I left in 2017 and I made wine in 2019. So I had a 2018, I was a bit like dabbling a little bit of everything, doing consultancy in that until I figured out that, yeah, I I want to make wine. And it's okay. I think a lot of people thought I was crazy though at this point. <laughs> but I think you need to have really a lot of confidence in yourself. Don't be influenced by others mm-hmm. because everyone's going to have an opinion whether beneficial to you or not. Um, just believe in yourself. Really go with your gut. I mean, there's nothing... I, I mean, I can't... I, I was going to say there's nothing to lose, but mm-hmm. I mean, I really... It, it's really... The, it's really That's also very relative. Um, I think you need to... Yeah, just be happy. But this is coming from me after... You know, from 18 to 33, I was doing different things. You know, I studied, like you said, politics and mm-hmm. human rights in the kitchen. Um, I think it's important to to just go with your gut whether or not you know what you're going to do or not. 
Mm-hmm. I think not knowing is the most scary thing. The unknown. The unknown, obviously, of failing or success. That's also a big issue. I think that's even a bigger issue than the financial. Mm-hmm. It's failure to your own eyes, but also failure to people around you. I think that's, it's a fear. It's a fear. You know, people, a lot of people, I mean, I'm myself included. I am afraid of failing because I've committed so much of my time and I've committed also, you know, financially quite a lot that if it all goes downhill, I don't know how I would feel about that. Right. So I think that, um, there's always going to be a gamble, Mm But I feel that you just have to go with your your gut. And if, it, if you want to stay in the kitchen, but you want to do something with kitchen related to other fields, that's also super cool because I think now it's more accepted than before. Mm-hmm. I think now there's many more opportunities than there was. And I think now the field actually is quite interesting, actually working in gastronomy because there's so many things you can do. Gastronomy and science or gastronomy and tech, gastronomy and cinema or music. I mean... Or even wine and food. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, a lot of things that back in the day, they didn't really have those opportunities, right? Um, I mean, everyone that's in the kitchen, I feel they're quite strong. Yeah. Right? Just to begin with. Yeah. You have to deal with all those things. You're really strong mentally, physically, even though you feel like really bogged down sometimes, which is normal. But it's really uh, biting the bullet and, and just fighting for... Fighting for what you love, to be honest. Exactly. I think the idea of the podcast is this, because sometimes we know all these things, but I think it makes so much more sense hearing it from somebody who's done it. And also, I loved how in every phase of it, you you highlighted how that part of Muguritz or any said kitchen helped you apply it. So I think people should value that oh, um, it's, it's, it's too late. I have to study, I don't know, anthropology at the age of 40. You have to, but then there is so much from your past that's going to help you. That's not time gone in vain. Also, the way you say, like, I think it's so much easier to live with, I failed, than I could have, I should have, I would have. All these questions are like, it's a, it's a sad uh, life to live if there is this big question mark looming over your head, you know? So I, I, I love the conversation we've had. It's been so fruitful, I think. Thank you for taking, t- t- taking time out. I think everybody hearing now has no, like, knows completely how busy your schedule is. I hope they can all bear with my voice that has been down for the past five days. <laughs> And no, thank you so much, Jade, for taking time out. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for inviting me. So that's it from this week's episode of Boyatras, a podcast where we bring to you the voice of the fugitive chefs. If you like listening to these interviews, do subscribe to us so that you do not miss out on any of these episodes. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube as Boyatras Podcast. We release new episodes every Tuesday, alternating between English and Spanish.